In the New Testament, there is an interesting verse that um, gives us pause and uh, makes us wonder, is it possible that some people may receive the grace of God in vain? In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, there's this, there's this verse that says, Paul says through it, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Interesting verse. Here's how a pastor, uh, Pastor Raymond Ortland, said about, uh, here's what he said about this verse. How can grace be received in vain? Isn't grace God's all-forgiving kindness to us? Doesn't God's grace compensate even for our half-hearted response to God? Why then does Paul urge us not to receive the grace of God in vain? And Pastor Ordland keeps going and says, Because God's grace not only accepts us, it also transforms us. But if all we want out of God is acceptance without transformation, we are receiving His grace in vain. And our Christianity is worthless. Is it possible, I ask you this morning, is it possible to receive the grace of God in vain? The passage we are looking at this morning shows us what, do, what God does with people who do receive His grace in vain. God will bring punishment. And our text actually says something more than that. That God is right to punish in such circumstances. Would you open God's Word to the book of Isaiah, chapter 5? I will be reading from verse 1 to verse 30. And uh, if you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to find the uh, church Bibles, the pew Bibles, and open them to page number 569. And as you turn your Bibles there, as you find this passage, I want to remind you that we are working our way through the book of Isaiah. We started a few weeks ago. And we are looking forward to see what God's, how God will teach us, how God will equip us, challenge us, confront us, uh, encourage us as well through this book. The book of Isaiah, chapter 5, verse 1. Here's the word of the Lord. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile soil. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. 
What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedges, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Jacob. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them, they have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. They honored me, their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Men, man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and their eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin with cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick, let him speak his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let him come, that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of the fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, 
and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people. And He stretched out His hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked and their corpses corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this His anger has not turned away and His hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, not a waistband is loose, nor a sand, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions, they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold darkness and distress. And the light is darkened by its clouds. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you pray with me, asking the Lord to give us His Spirit as we're about to hear from Him? Let's pray. Father, give us humble hearts who are ready to hear. And give us your spirit also to enable us to perceive the truth of your word. And give us willingness and readiness to apply and to respond to your truth. In the name of Jesus we pray for his glory and honor and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And so the text we have before us is part of the, really the last part of the, of the introduction to the book of Isaiah. The introductory section of these pictures that we have seen so far in the first uh, five chapters. Starting with chapter 6, we're going to get into some historical narrative of what actually started to happen uh, to Isaiah and to some of his encounter with the king's of his day. Up until now, we saw visions. We saw prophetic words. Um, up until now, we saw two pictures uh, that, that compared Israel's real situation with what God will do in a distant future. The real situation uh, determines and triggers God's judgment. But God also portrayed a time in the, in the distant future when God will restore His people, when God will be, bring glory to His people. At the time Isaiah wrote, the nation was going through economic prosperity, especially during the, uh, the reign of King Uzziah. The, the nation had finished off a very long season of great prosperity 
about 52 years of reign uh, that, in which Uzziah reigned. Humanly speaking, they thought the nation was doing great. It had great wealth. It had a large army to protect itself. had great alliances with the surrounding nations. There was only one problem. God's view of their situation did not match their view of their situation. So in chapters 1 through 4, we have seen how God exposed their real situation and God's view of their real situation. God exposed their rebellion and their sin. While they continued to maintain religious services, their lives show showed that they did not care about what God actually said in His Word. They became proud in their religion. They became proud in their choices. So God promised to bring them low, to replace their luxurious lifestyle with utter shame and reproach. And yet God also promised that He, through that humbling, through that judgment, that He will cleanse the remnant and restore His people and fill them again, once again, with His glorious presence. In chapter 4, God promised to do great things in the distant future. But now in chapter 5, Isaiah turns his back, or he turns us back to the present situation. What, is, what are the people of Israel experiencing during Isaiah's own time? In chapter 5, it's as if, Isaiah is giving a State of the Union address to Israel. In chapter 4, he just finished telling them what God will do in the distant future. Great glory. God will restore His people and His presence will be with them. But in chapter 5, Isaiah brings us back to, let's see where we are now and what God will do in the immediate future with us. And the title of his State of the Union address is this. God is right to punish. As we look at this, at this passage, at this message that Isaiah gives to his people to understand their real situation in their own lifetime, we're going to look at three parts to this address that Isaiah gives about God being right to punish. What's amazing about this message that Isaiah brings is, is that it is a beautifully articulated and very uh, ornate with images. It's actually one of the most poetic pictures of all of Isaiah. The famous song of Isaiah. The famous song of the vineyard is right here. And when we look at the first few verses, verses 1 through 7, we notice that it's actually a love song. As we look at this song, let's look at how God laments for his vineyard. This is the first part of Isaiah's address, of Isaiah's State of the Union address for his people. God laments for his vineyard. We see the song that describes the relationship between God and His people. And this song makes a few points. Here's the, the first sub-point of our first point. 
God has done everything possible to ensure fruitfulness. Notice what the owner has done for this vineyard. Verse 1, he planted the vineyard on a very fertile hill. In other words, it was in a great location with great soil. In verse 2, the owner dug the soil and cleared it of stones. In other words, he did the adequate preparations for planting the vines. Then in verse 2, we are told that he planted it with the choice vines, not the common vines, not the cheap stuff, not the stuff you get on a discount just to get the hill populated with a large vineyard. No, he planted the choice vines in it. But he also uh, built a watchtower. He didn't just build up a little hut where he could quickly put it up and then tear it down when the season was over. He planted or he built a permanent watchtower so he could dwell in it. And then he, he also built a wine vat. The wine vat was the, the permanent storage house to store the fruit of the vineyard. In other words, the owner really expected to stay there and to get lots of fruit out of this vineyard. But instead, look at verse 2. This vineyard yielded wild grapes. Now this is a parable. This is a song. The point of the parable is drawn out in verses 3 and 4. Why is God giving this parable to his people? God invites the people of Jerusalem and the people of Judah to judge between the owner of this vineyard and his vineyard. Now there are only two options here regarding who is at fault. Is it God? Did God fail to do something and therefore the cause of the wild graves could be uh, credited uh, to God. Is God a problem here? Or is it a vineyard? God invites people to consider if there's anything else that God left undone. Look at verse 3 and 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Parents who see children rebel often ask this question. Is there anything we have done wrong? Or what did we fail to do that we should have done and we just didn't do? Do you hear that lament, that reflective regret, is there something I've missed? Now, God is asking the same question. The answer any Israelite would have given to this picture is, there's nothing else, God, you could have done. You have done everything right in preparing for planting this vineyard. You have chosen the best location. You have prepared the ground for it. You have ch chosen the best vines to plant. You have built up a tower. You have built up a wine vat. You even built, you even built 
uh, the walls around it to protect it from, from being abused or, or, or influenced by outside influence. Everything you could have done right, you have. Any significance that the Israelites are invited to judge between the vineyard and the owner here? You see, Isaiah, friends, could have just declared a message of judgment against Israel. And there are times when he will do that. But in this passage, Isaiah is inviting the people of Israel to judge between this owner and the vineyard. The second point of this parable is that there's nothing else God could have done about this vineyard. That's the second point about this vineyard, the story of this vineyard makes. God has done everything about it. And any Israelite would have arrived at that conclusion. So in verse 5 and 6, we are told what the owner of the vineyard will do. First of all, let's remember, it's his vineyard. It's his vineyard. He can do with it whatever he chooses. But the decision, what he will do with his vineyard, is not simply a haphazard decision of how he woke up that morning and he just had a bad feeling and just decided he's going to wipe it out. No, he took us through this process to recognize there's no, nothing else that could have been done about this vineyard. So therefore, here's what he decided to do, verse 5, and now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. God had built a strong protection around this vineyard. But now he will tear down the protection walls so that the vineyard will be vulnerable to the abuse and the attacks of the outside. But it doesn't stop there. In verse 6, God will make this vineyard to be a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. Briars and thorns shall grow up. In other words, no one, no one will tend to this vineyard. No one will care for it. No one will prune it to make it fruitful again. But it doesn't stop here. There's something else about this owner of this vineyard. He has the power to command the clouds. Friends, no owner of vineyards has this power. And he says, here's what else I will do to my vineyard. I will tell the clouds to avoid it. So no rain will ever fall on it again. So it will become a waste. If this vineyard is not producing the good fruits the owner was intending and expected, then there's no reason for this vineyard to continue to exist or to give the impression that it's a good vineyard. The owner is right in bringing upon this vineyard this judgment because no matter what the owner has done, he can do nothing else to make this vineyard bear good fruit. Indeed, there's nothing left God can do about this vineyard but to let it be destroyed and go to waste and be wasted. The third point that we see in this, just this parable, we are still in point number one, and we are at the third sub-point. The third sub-point of, of this parable is that God has been looking for good fruit in His people. Isaiah tells us the interpretation of this parable. 
after he had asked the Israelites to say, judge between me and my vineyard. Now here's the interpretation. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. The story of this vineyard is a story of his people. God is looking for fruit from his people. God had done everything possible for them. God would ensure that they would, they would bear good fruit. But instead of bearing good fruit, God found in them the opposite. Look at verse 7. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Friends, I wonder if we recognize in these fruits that God is expecting to live, uh, expecting His people to live in ways that reflect His character. If you look down at verse 16, we get a picture of who God is. The Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows Himself holy in righteousness. That's how God is presenting Himself here. And He is looking for the fruit of His own character among them. But instead of justice, He found violence and crime. Instead of righteousness, God found outcry. The outcry is the sign of broken relationships. The outcry is a sign of tensions. The outcry is a response of those who are affected by the lack of, by the lack of righteous actions. God has looked to His people for good fruit. Through their actions, through their decisions, through their relationships, were these people showing God the fruits that God desired? No. Friend, God was not looking to His people simply to see what they believed about God. God was looking to see how God was looking to see not simply how well they were worshiping in the temple. God was looking to see what their belief in God produced in their lives when they were away from the temple. In their daily actions, in their daily choices, in their decisions, in their lifestyle, they didn't make them live out what God actually said. Friends, it makes no difference how much you believe in God if that belief leaves you in the same way of life. It really doesn't matter how much you believe in God if that belief leaves you in the same way of life. God laments over His vineyard because it brought bad fruit. The second point we see in this passage, after Isaiah paints this picture of the vineyard, the second major part of this text is a list of, of woes. And we see here, these woes are actually Israel's bad fruit. The second point we can see in this, in this text that Israel's bad fruit justifies God's punishment. Israel's bad fruit justifies God's punishment. In verses 8 through 25, God exposes and brings out six examples of the bad fruit that Israel has produced. And in these, past, in these woes, or in these exposures, we see them as, as woes. 
as both judgment and lament. Here's the first bad fruit. By the way, we'll see these six bad fruits. Two of them are paired up together, and then there's two therefores. And then the, and the final four woes are paired again together, and then there's going to be two more therefores. There's a structure to how, how this exposure of the bad fruit is presented here. Let's work our way through it. Here's the first bad fruit. First bad fruit is greed. Verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Now, God gave very clear commands in the book of Leviticus that the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is the Lord's. Um, And uh, God said, you are strangers and sojourners with me. But the Israelites ignored that law. They focused on buying out their neighbor's land and building bigger estates until they would remain isolated monarchs in large properties. It's as if they, they, they bought all the little neighbors around, put all the lands together, they created one large estate, made those little neighbors become servants of this richer guy, and the land, instead of being filled with small houses and small properties all around, evenly spread out, it's, the land became this estate, I mean, this, this, uh, this place where just large estates who were isolated by themselves existed. The rich had become richer at the expense of the poor. So God exposed the greed of his people. The second bad fruit is self-indulgence. Look at verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. People were running after drinking and getting drunk. They have given themselves to drunkenness, to partying, to entertainment. They were living life to fulfill their bodily pleasures, and they were not realizing that what they were not realizing what God was doing among them. Look at verse 12. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts. But they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the words, the works of his hands. The sin of self-indulgence, dear friends, makes us numb to recognize the work of God in our lives and around us. We become careless toward the things of God because we seem to get so much out of our satisfaction and the fulfillment of our desires. So when we give in to self-indulgence, we become numb to spiritual understanding. So God's response to, to this is seen in two therefore statements. In verse 13, therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Now, when we say lack of knowledge, let's be clear. This is not lack of information. The prophets provided all the information. The lack of knowledge is knowledge of the Lord. The book of Isaiah is testimony that God has not kept them away from a testimony of what their evil deeds have done. They had the information. In that sense, we might say they had the knowledge. But the lack of knowledge that's referred to here is they had lacked the spiritual perception of what God was doing. And therefore, they're going to exile because they don't understand. They lack the 
the perception of what God is doing. The second, therefore, is in verse 14. Isaiah pictures death here as having a very large mouth open beyond measure. Friends, there's a little bit of irony here. Remember the first woe was against those who are greedy? Well, here we're presented with another greedy element. This time it's death. Death is greedy for them. They have been greedy and running after their own desires. God says, Sheol will open its mouth beyond measure. Dear friends, this is, this is a news that God tells them that he's going to take them into captivity and they and the death toll of those who will die in the process will be enormous. Isaiah is prophesying that God will bring to th- them to death and to captivity or captivity and death. And in doing this, Look at verse 15 and 16. Isaiah is saying that God will humble them. God will humble them by taking from them not only their land for which they were so greedy, but also their lives which they tried so hard to satisfy by being self-indulgent. Friends, one of the ways we can fight against pride is to remember our mortality. Nothing else will humble us down than to remember that our days are numbered. For some of us, we might have more days ahead than others. God, in verse 15 and 16, we see the contrast that we've already seen last week. On one side, mankind will be humbled. On the other side, God will be exalted. Don't forget this contrast. It's key in the book of Isaiah. Christ's exaltation God's exaltation is displayed through his justice and righteousness. The very things that God's people lacked and despised and rejected. Friends, I wonder if you recognize that God is exalted not only when we praise him with song or with prayers. God is also exalted when he humbles his rebellious people. And there's a third bad fruit that we see in verse 18, deliberate deception. Deliberate deception. Look at verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. In this situation, people use deception to continue in their sin. Not only they, they live in their sin, but now they use falsehood to continue to live in it. They are intentional in staying in it. And to do so, they have to deceive others. Here the picture God gives of these people is a picture of someone pulling a cart with ropes. Now typically, who do you have pulling a cart? A cart? Animals. What did it mean that an animal was tied together to pull the cart? He was, in, he was bound to it. Well, here God uses that picture to describe the people who are deliberate in their deception. It's not the animals that are pulling the cart now. It's the sinners who are pulling their sin 
with cart ropes. But what's shocking about this picture is here's what these people are saying. Look at verse 19. Not, so not only are they pulling sin with cart ropes, look at what they say. Let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. There are people who live intentionally in sin and want to stay in it, yet with their mouths, they say they want to know God's will. They want God's counsel. Friends, that is self-deception. Externally, they might say all the right things. Desiring the counsel of the Lord. But their hearts, they intentionally keep on sinning and they use falsehood in the process. With a mouth, a person can say they want to follow God. But with their hearts, they continue to live in sin, deceiving others and being self-deceived themselves. This was the third bad fruit that Israel was producing. Deliberate deception and self-deception. The fourth woe, the fourth bad fruit, is against those who reverse the truth. Look at verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Well, friends, the danger of sin is that once we become self-deceived, the next stage is that we call what is evil good and what is good evil. We now justify our sin and call it acceptable, desirable. At this stage, a person has lost his ability to discern what is right and what is wrong. The fifth woe is against those who are self-autonomous. Look at verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own hearts. I'm sorry, wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own insight. These people think they know better than others. They think they have a better view of themselves than they actually are. They choose their own self-reference. They're wise in their own eyes. Have you been there? The sixth woe, the sixth bad fruit, is against those who are confident in their self-indulgence. Look at verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Friends, the self-indulgence could either be in drinking or in greed or in injustice. Each of these sins have already been addressed by now in the book of Isaiah. But now they're brought again and for some people... They will not only live in these sins, but they will be self-confident in living in that way. Have you ever seen people who are self-confident that they can handle sin? Oh, I'm sure I won't let sin master this in my life. Oh, friends, such self-confidence against sin is a huge red flag that someone is on the way to being blinded, not only by sin, but blinded by their own insufficiency. They are losing their sense of fearing their own limitations. After the last four woes, God gives two more 
therefores in verse 24 and then 25. We see four pictures of how swiftly such people will fall. Have you ever seen grass, dry grass, catch on fire? Have you seen how quickly it catches a flame and then just quickly burns? That's the picture God gives in verse 24 of how quickly and swiftly these people will be destroyed. Their fall is presented not only as coming swiftly, but their fall is total. Not only will the, will the top be burnt, but the roots will become as rottenness. There will be nothing left, not even the roots to revive them. Why such swift and total destruction? Look at verse 25. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. They have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Rejecting the word of God and despising what God has spoken. You know, one of the places that the people of Israel have rejected and despised is in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29. When God, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, through Moses, speaks to them and, say, and says to them, if you will turn against me, if you will turn your hearts to start pursuing other idols, if you despise my word, I will bring upon you all the curses of this book. I will take you out of this land if you turn your back against me. God said that in Deuteronomy chapter 29. Go home and read that chapter. But did the Israelites really take that to heart? They said, we are children of Abraham. Come on, we are God's people. We belong to him. And they have despised God's very warning against them if they choose to turn their backs on him. Oh, dear friends, recognize this. The, the, the last therefore in verse 25, therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. God will do what he promised to do, not only to bless, but also to bring destruction against those who turn their backs against the Lord. In verse 25, we get a sense of, of the kind of things God has done and will continue to do. Therefore, the Lord was kindled against his people. In verse 25, there's a reference to mountains quaking. It's interesting that during Isaiah's time, particularly he, during his early ministry, there was a significant earthquake that caused quite a bit of destruction. That earthquake was God's means of getting their attention. Yet the earthquake, apparently did not turn God's people back to God. So this verse ends with a claim, for all this his anger has not been turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. In other words, God's judgment against his people was not just the earthquake. There's more to come, says the Lord. And that word, still, and his hand is stretched out still. Is the point of Isaiah's book. There's more to come in God judging his people. And then the final part of this passage, verses 26 to 30, we get a picture that God's punishment is inescapable. God's punishment is inescapable. Verses 26 to 30 
we see what it means for God to say, my hand is stretched out still. The reasons why the nations of, around Israel starting to, to, to pose a threat to, towards Israel, they thought, was because uh, Assyria was, be- was becoming more greedy. Uh, Egypt wanted to have dominance. So these major nations around Israel thought, we want to take control of, of the world or of the, of the area of that time. But Isaiah's point to the people of Israel is this. It's not because of political or economic hunger that the nations will threaten you, O Judah. The real reason why the nations will come against you is because God calls them. In verse 26, we see a picture of God, of what God will do. He's blowing a whistle. Call the nations from afar. The nations from afar will come against God's people at the blow of God's whistle that God himself will blow. Now think about that for the sovereignty of God who has the power to to get an entire Assyrian empire and later an entire Babylonian empire to travel across lands, and all it takes God to get them going is to blow his whistle. just want you to picture that picture. The only bad part about that picture is that the whistle is blown against God's vineyard. In the rest of verse 26 to 30, we see the kind of judgment and the kind of punishment that God will bring against His people. These nations are are swift. They're quick. God says that, that they're ready to come. I love this picture in verse 27. All their bows are bent. They're not just ready to go. They're not just prepared in the quiver. And the quiver is full of of the spears. No, the spear is already on the bow, and the bow is already bent. All it takes is to let go. It's a picture of how ready the nations are to come. There's no more time left. And then there's there's this beautiful picture of, of how efficient their military is. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose. Not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp. Their wheels are like whirlwind. And then their attack is is pictured by two more pictures. Their attack will be like lions growling and seizing their prey and carrying it off. And the point of the pictures of the lions is none can rescue and then that picture of the lions is turned into a picture of a storm, of a sea that is in a, stor- in a stormy uh, situation, growling in its waves. The point of these pictures is that there, no, there will be no possibility for rescue out of their attack. The attack will be total. No help will be provided against their attack. The destruction is total. 
God tells them and gives them these pictures so their imagination can be imbued and seared with these pictures of what God will do when He will blow His whistle against His vineyard. For the generation of Isaiah's time, dear friends, this was total destruction. Real destruction. God promised to keep a remnant. That's true. God promised to restore His people. But that was to come generations later. For that generation of Isaiah's time, this was it. There are some Christians who think, well, there will be redemption in the end. So I will continue to live my life in my sin. I know that I belong to God. Nothing bad can happen to me. Not in the end. Friend, don't repeat the same mistake that Israel fell into. Don't use your status with God as an excuse to keep producing bad fruit. Don't use your status with God as an excuse for lacking to produce the good fruit of righteousness. Now, those who are followers of Christ, there's both a great news and a bad news for us as we move to the New Testament. The great news for us as Christians is that we have something even more powerful than the Israelites had to enable us to be fruitful for God. God has given us His own Son, Jesus, so that through Him we can bear much fruit. Jesus said in John 15, I am the true vine. And my Father is a vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, what does He do with it? He takes it away. In other words, and this is the bad news, even of the New Testament, in other words, fruitless branches, even in Jesus, fruitless branches will be cut away. Do you hear that warning that Jesus himself gave, my dear brother and sister? Do you hear that? Don't say, oh, I mean, we are in New Testament times. The grace of God is greater in the New Testament times. Oh, the grace of God, dear friends, is indeed greater in New Testament times. But even in the New Testament times, we can make the grace of God in us to be vain. Paul warned against it. Jesus warns against it. And every branch that does not bear fruit, I'm sorry, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear fruit. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Friend, recognize that God has given us Christ to be the source of our fruitfulness. And when we are connected to Christ and when we abide in Him, not just as a loose connection, when we abide in Jesus, 
the proof of that is that there will be much fruit. But don't take the grace of God in Jesus Christ and just assume that you can be safe without producing fruit. The great warning is that Jesus himself warns that fruitless branches will be cut off, withered, and will be thrown into the fire and will burn. Friends, God warns us through this Old Testament picture and through what we see even in John 15. God warns us of the danger of assuming that fruitless Christianity is safe. Fruitless Christianity is dangerous. Take no assurance in it. Jesus continues in verse in John 15:8, "By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and thus prove to be my disciples." Friend, I want to make sure you understand, producing fruit is not what makes us Christians. What makes us Christians is the new birth that God gives us when we hear the gospel and respond to it by repenting of our sins and trusting in Jesus for our salvation. When we repent and place our trust in Christ, something happens inside of us. The Holy Spirit unites us with Jesus. The Holy Spirit produces a union between us and Jesus. And we are engrafted into Jesus who is the vine. And we will begin out of that union. The life of Jesus will start flowing into us and will start affecting our thinking. It will start affecting our emotions. It will start affecting our desires and our actions. And when we are in Christ, we will begin to produce the fruit that will resemble what Christ is like. So producing fruit is not what makes us Christians. Producing fruit is the proof that we are Christians. Sadly, the Israelites failed to produce the fruit that God expected them to have, even though God has done everything for them to be fruitful. So consider today this message that Isaiah has given to his own generation. The State of the Union Address for the Israelites of Isaiah's time. This address has a simple message. God is right to punish. We saw three parts of this address. God is right to punish. God laments for His vineyard's fruitlessness. God is right to punish because Israel's bad fruit justifies the punishment. God is right to punish in that God's punishment is inescapable. On first impression, this message does not seem to be very positive, does it? It doesn't seem like an uplifting message. It feels more like a cold shower. But friends, this message is helpful for us to hear. It's helpful for us for two reasons. It's helpful to hear that God's punishment is never unjustified. God's punishment is never unjustified. If God chooses to punish, it is always because there's reason for it. And there's plenty of reason for it. In this text, the prophet took great pains to show us 
how deservingly Israel was of God's punishment. And the very fact, dear friends, the very fact that this picture is presented to us as a love song, a song about an unfruitful vineyard, shows that this message is not a cold shower. It's a message of love. It feels like a cold shower because it's painful. Because Israel has despised God's love and care for them. God's love and care over them. Israel has despised that. So this message comes from a broken heart. God's own heart is broken as he laments over the wild fruit of his vineyard. But this message is also helpful for us because God invites us to take God's side against the fruitlessness of his people. And in doing so, we are challenged to examine our own fruitlessness and what God might have to say towards us as well. God is right to punish the fruitlessness of his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who continues to pursue us. You are a God who laments over our fruitlessness. You are a God who is just to bring punishment against the rebellion of your people. And Father, you are right to invite us to take your side in your judgment and to see your exaltation even through, ju through judgment and punishment. To see that when you humble, rebellious sinners, you are right. You are exalted. You are glorious in doing even that. Help us, O God, to humble ourselves before you. Help us, O Lord, to, to seek and examine our own hearts and to see if there's the fruitlessness that you desire. Help us, O Lord, to run back to you so that through being reconnected to you, to being reconnected to the vine who is Christ, we may bear much fruit for your glory. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.